This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Mother's Day is almost here, a time when it feels like everybody is paying attention to moms, at least for one day. It's an acknowledgement of how much effort it takes to raise children and to continue to care for them. And if you look around for Mother's Day gifts, you'll probably see stuff like bubble baths, yoga classes, spa days, a whole slew of things aimed to promote self-care for tireless moms. But psychiatrist Pooja Lakshman says real self-care isn't a product or something you can buy. Real wellness, real self-care lives inside all of us. And even though social media might tell us that there's a quick fix or a way to fast track your mental health. That's actually not true. In her practice, Pooja focuses on women's mental health, and she says the wellness industry is selling an illusion. I take care of mostly new moms who are going through the transition to motherhood, postpartum period. And I was seeing more and more patients over the past five or six years come in and say things like, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, I know I'm burnt out, and I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my phone that I know I'm supposed to be using, and I know I'm supposed to go to yoga, but I just can't find the time. And I was finding myself basically screaming to my patients that that this isn't your fault. Motherhood, as wonderful as it can be, can feel like a lot of pressure. Mommy. Mommy. Mommy, you want to know something? Mommy, 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 mommy. A never-ending to-do list, a marathon. Not something a little me time, a manicure, or a soak in the tub can wash away. So what do moms really need? On this episode, we'll look into new research and science on managing motherhood, why it can sometimes feel overwhelming, and how to make time for joy. We'll also discuss brain science that looks into some of the changes that happen during that time period. To get started, let's stick with Pooja Lakshman. Her new book is called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. In the book, Pooja challenges the idea of self-care for moms because it's usually framed as something moms can and should do to feel better, when really their lives and what's expected of them is often unmanageable. So self-care becomes one more item on the to-do list, but it doesn't actually help. You know, the juice cleanse or the exercise program or even a self-help book. Right. It's so easy to kind of feel like, okay, this is the answer. This now I've found my Bible. And if I just follow all the rules, then happiness will be on the other side. And what I found is that that's not true, that that there's no quick fix. And the reason that there isn't a quick fix is because the systems that we live inside are actually broken. Pooja says the way our society is set up is a betrayal of women and mothers. 
So when I'm talking about betrayal, I'm talking about the social betrayal, the way that our culture and our society has left families and mothers in particular to fend for themselves. The fact that we don't have paid parental leave federally mandated, the fact that childcare is so expensive and inaccessible to so many families in America. And there's a study that I cite in Real Self Care that brings this to light and makes it really clear. So in Sweden, they offered new fathers 30 days of flexible paid paternity leave benefits. And when they did that, they found that there was a 26% decrease in the number of anti-anxiety medications that were prescribed for new mothers. And I find that to be such a crystal clear example of the fact that when we're talking about mental health, we're also talking about the social determinants of health. We're talking about what type of support do you have and what is the culture that you live in? What is, is your country? What is your community actually doing to support your mental health? Pooja says a lot of moms experience this heavy pressure to do it all and to do it perfectly. I talk about the work of Martha Beck, who is a sociologist who's been studying culture for decades. And she points out that the expectations that culture puts on mothers are completely contradictory, right? You're expected to have a Pinterest perfect house, exclusively breastfeed for years, you know, baby led wean, <laughs> make organic food for your kids. Um, but you're also supposed to climb the professional ladder, right? And make enough money to take your family on luxury vacations, right? It, these rules don't add up. If you follow one set of rules, you're breaking another. So as a psychiatrist, I think about that and I frame it as we internalize those contradictions and then we feel bad, we feel guilty, we make ourselves the bad guy and we say, well, in order to contort myself into all of these different uh, expectations, I need to be doing more, I need to figure it out, I need to figure out how to be more productive, more efficient. My response to that is that no, this isn't our fault. The game is rigged, right? All of these rules are actually completely made up, and they're contradictory. Pooja is feeling some of these contradictions herself. She became a mom almost a year ago. We have to give ourselves flexibility, compassion, and we have to let go of all of those external pressures. So for me, that took the form of, of being very flexible in my feeding decisions and, and combo feeding and letting go of any type of perfection when it came to feeding and, and also protecting my sleep. I'm a perinatal psychiatrist, so I really focus on prevention of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Sleep is so important, and sleep is tied to social determinants of health and ability to actually make decisions for yourself with agency. So that means who's your support system? Can you have help? Who's the family that's able to come? But also being able to advocate for yourself in your relationships and understanding that your mental health is actually the most important thing that's going to lead to outcomes for your baby or for your child. And I feel like we put a lot of pressure on each other because there's so much anxiety around, you know, am I doing this right? Am I a good mom? And then we might see somebody else doing something very different. And then we're like, well, she is not doing it right. Or maybe I'm not doing it right. But there is a lot of 
judgment and and negativity often around who's being the good mom. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I see that as a symptom of women and mothers' position in society, mm-hmm. right? And we're talking when we're talking about oppression, right? And we're talking about the ways in which motherhood is exalted and deified but also completely structurally unsupported. So mothers are supposedly the most important folks in our society, yet <laughs> yeah. the, right, 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 yet we don't have paid parental leave in America. So that all plays out downstream in sort of the different culture wars that we see. And, you know, I've been doing this work for almost a decade. I, I'm now almost 39. I became a mom later in life. And people have asked me, well, what do you think now that you're living it? And I say, I knew it was hard from the distance that I was at. And now I know that it's even harder than I thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think so much of this really came to a head during the pandemic when this invisible work became just really visible for, for a little while. And I think people realized, like, wow, you know, there's only so much I can do in any given day. And right now I'm doing all of it. Yeah, I like to say you can't meditate your way out of a 40-hour work week with no child care. And (laughs) I think we saw that during the pandemic. And we tried. Yes, 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 we tried. And, And there were forces outside of us that were expecting folks to pull off this magic trick, right? And I think that's what is important to me in writing Real Self-Care, to not pretend that that the solution is easy, right? Mm -hmm. So, right, if the solution is not a juice cleanse or a bubble bath or a room full of crystals, right, if the solution is actually taking a hard look at your life and making difficult choices about how you spend your time and energy, that's something that's going to look different for every single family. And... You know, I think that when we make the solution personal as opposed to commercial, then we at least have a chance of getting to collective change. I give an example in real self-care of a patient in my practice. She was actually deeply upset with her husband because he had never asked for a paternity leave at his job. He worked on small teams. He felt like it was going to be too much of a risk. So when she got pregnant with their third baby, she made a point to hold him to this. She said, I need you to really step up. I need you to ask. I need you to ask. They might say no, but I need you to at least ask. And they ended up saying yes. And he did get paternity leave. And that change went on to impact everybody else who worked at that company. And now my patient, she wasn't trying to be an advocate or an activist. She was just trying to not hate her husband and not get divorced, (laughs) right? (laughs) But if she would have just stayed at the step of the bubble bath we would have never gotten to that place. Yeah, and you make it clear in the book that, you know, you're not opposed to bubble baths or yoga or whatever it is, but we have to ask ourselves deeper questions about those activities. So what are the questions we have to to ask? Yeah, the metaphor that I like to use is that, you know, if we're all drowning, as many mothers feel most of the time, The bubble bath is, that's the life raft, right? And sometimes you just need that. You just need that to hang on. But the real self-care is what is your plan for getting back to shore, right? How do you swim back to shore? 
And so that's the place where you really need to look deep inside and understand, you know, what's most important for me? What brings me meaning? That's psychiatrist Pooja Lakshman. Her new book is called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness. We're talking about motherhood, and coming up, we'll explore ways to manage some of the challenges. Your boundary is in your pause. The pause is the boundary. And then you can say yes, you can say no, or you can negotiate. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train. A high-performing business takes a high-performing building. Reach organizational goals while enhancing systems and reducing emissions with Train Energy Services. Explore their consultative approach at train.com slash energy services. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about motherhood and how to navigate some of its challenges. Psychiatrist Pooja Lakshman offers up some advice in her new book, Real Self-Care, a Transformative Program for Redefining Wellness. You talk about boundaries and how we can imagine boundaries, not as brick walls, but more like a net around a trampoline that's flexible, but they are there and they are important. And I think boundaries are just such a challenge for a lot of women. Yeah, absolutely. Boundaries, I think, are one of the toughest because, again, like we've been talking about, the culture on the outside thrives when women don't have boundaries, let's say. Um, So I had my aha moment 
about boundaries back in 2016 when I first came on the faculty at George Washington University. My mentor at the time took me out for lunch and she gave me a piece of advice. She said, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail, listen to what they want, and then you can decide. And that was when I realized, oh, the boundary, your boundary is in your pause. The pause is the boundary. And then you can say yes, you can say no, or you can negotiate. And, you know, no is not always available for everybody at all times, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important to to understand the pause is the boundary. And then, of course, there's going to be times where you have to say yes and you really don't want to say yes. But it's part of life, right? We all have to do things that we're not excited about at times. But it's in that space where you get to then decide, you can ask questions. You know, you can say, well, what is the deadline for this? How much work is it going to take? What are the expectations, right? That pause is how I think about, you know, the trampoline and that visual. How do we find joy in everyday life when being a mom can be so stressful? And I think, you know, self-care is being sold to us as these little blissful moments that then don't end up feeling that way or they feel more stressful. So where does actual real joy come back into your life? Oh, gosh, you're asking me the hard questions today. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that my take on this is I think sometimes when we put pressure on ourselves to find joy, it can add to more guilt or more kind of a sense of like, oh, gosh, I'm still not living up to it. So I think of this, and, and I'm living it, to be clear. I'm, I'm on this book tour. I have an 11-month-old. I take care of patients, so I'm juggling a million things. And I come back to the fact that real self-care is a verb. So when I wake up in the morning and I look at the list of the things that I'm going to be doing during the day, how can I bring more care for myself? How can I bring curiosity? How can I be present in the different conversations that I'm having. And usually that means slowing down. Usually that means incorporating the pause. Usually that means giving myself space to actually be myself and not have to perform or do things perfectly, like as we were talking about the different expectations. So I think it's less about adding something to the list and more about looking at your responsibilities and your tasks and your activities and bringing more of yourself to those things. You know, so often my patients say, I feel like I'm managing my family as opposed to actually being part of my family. And that's a symptom of the mental load, right? That's a symptom of your inner prefrontal cortex. You're the mom manager organizing everything, but you don't feel like you're allowed to actually have space to be part of the team. So to touch on another kind of important tool here is to remember that you're allowed to be on the team, right? It's not about being selfish or selfless. It's actually about just putting yourself in the equation once in a while so you're part of the team. And if you do that, if you reframe to actually be on the team, then I think moments of joy will come naturally because you'll spend more time being present. But I think when we put pressure on ourselves to find the joy, then it can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think it's important to notice the absence of joy. I 
found that in becoming a mom, a lot of things became tasks and chores and lists, mm. you know, and you're always functioning. You're always like, okay, here's this thing. Here's the next thing. Oh, here's the next thing. So everything sort of became a task. And at some point I realized like, wow, I'm not having any fun at all. <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. like, I am just going from one task to the next. And this is not how I want to live my life. But it took me a long time to even notice that because I think I was taking some weird pride in the fact that I was managing it all. Right, right. I mean, I think that that's such a universal experience. I've felt that too. I think we have to catch ourselves because we're rewarded externally also for getting everything done, right? And being on top of everything. This is why kind of the real self-care piece is that it really is a lifelong practice too, um, because there's always going to be so many tasks and there are always going to be so many responsibilities. And so you have to sort of remind yourself to come out of it and recognize when if you're not experiencing any joy, if everything feels like a burden, that that means it's time to step back and, and lean on these boundaries, get more clear on what your values are and what's important, what you can let go of and how you can show up differently to your life. It can be easy to lose track of how you're feeling or how you are when you become a mom, there are so many demands, there's always something going on. So as one foray into self-care, how do we even begin to check in on our bodies, on ourselves? You have to be really deliberate about it and also recognize that in that postpartum period, you don't have time for any sort of big sweeping check-ins or gestures so I usually recommend in that first three or four weeks, giving yourself even 10 minutes once a week to kind of say, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to be with myself, right? I'm going to just go for a walk around the block. I'm going to sit in my room, sit in my bed. So even taking just 10 or 15 minutes once a week to kind of be on your own to check in is something that is powerful and profound the most important piece here also is to recognize when you go to that place, when you're reconnecting with yourself, what you feel might not be great. <laughs> you might be really, really exhausted. You might have feelings of grief. Um, you might be angry, right? Those feelings might not be good ones, and that's normal. You don't want to rush to turn them off or to stop giving yourself time to check in. The next step there is to find a way to be in community and to have other folks that you can talk to and that you can be with. Maybe not physically, because it is hard to get out of the house when you're in that new motherhood time, but it can be anything, you know, whether it's your friends from college, right? Just checking in with other people and having a space to be able to talk honestly and, and non-judgmentally about what you're doing and what you're experiencing. Pooja Lakshman is a psychiatrist and the author of Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. We're talking about motherhood and how it impacts well-being and health. 
When new moms are really struggling with anxiety and depression and they need help, getting those resources can be tough. Nina Feldman reported on efforts to meet moms where they're at. Stacy Callum knows how hard it is to be a new mom. Literally just bundling up your child and leaving the house is an accomplishment um, in that immediate postpartum phase. Callum is a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Having her own baby gave her a whole new empathy for her patients. What else is going on with her now? She is starting to take steps. <gasps> By herself? She took five yesterday. It's Callum's job to take care of the little ones. But she also checks in on the moms. At each visit during the baby's first year, Callum screens new mothers for postpartum depression. If signs point to a problem, Callum refers them to mental health services. But she started wondering, are they really going? She did some research to find out. Callum looked at the medical claims for all mothers diagnosed with postpartum depression at CHOP's urban offices to see how many sought help. In the six months after being diagnosed, only one in 10 mothers got any kind of treatment. Callum understands why. So first, you have to get yourself to the appointment. You have to arrange for childcare. And then on top of all of that, you might have depression. I mean, of course it's hard. Of course so many mothers aren't receiving services. The system isn't set up to be easy for them. That's exactly how Stephanie Lee felt when she was pregnant with her son, Santino. Yeah, umbrella. Umbrella, right. The rain. Yes, the rain. Rain in clouds. In the clouds, right. Santino is Lee's second child. She spent most of her 20s and 30s raising her first son, and when he left home, she had her independent life back. I was, like, popping. Like, I was busy. I was out. I, my son was out of the house. It's like almost like I felt like Stella got her groove back. I got my groove back. Like, oh, my God, like, I'm free in a sense. Even when she got pregnant again at 37, Lee felt like she could keep that momentum going. I thought I was going to be able to work out until my ninth month and work up until my ninth month. Like, I was like, I'm being labor at work. But about five months into her pregnancy, Lee had a procedure to prevent her from going into an unsafe early labor. It forced her to stay on bed rest. She had to stop working her job as a bus driver, and it was a real adjustment. It was so rough. Like, I was a mess. Like, I was crying. While she was on bed rest, Lee was stressed. She was worried about money, and she was lonely. So her insurance company set her up with the Maternity Care Coalition— the nonprofit sent a community health worker to her home in Montgomery County once a week, someone to talk to and connect Lee with financial help. But Lee kept feeling depressed and anxious after Santino was born. She felt unsupported. Her family is spread out, and she and Santino's dad don't live together. Santino just turned two, but Lee still gets emotional thinking about that time. A lot of people, like me being older and having a baby now... There's not many people that sometimes in that space know with me no more, like, to have somebody to relate to. Lee's community health worker, April McNeil, is a new mom, too, and the two became friends. In retrospect, they can laugh. We're thinking back to that time period. Oh, my gosh. She's like, well, how am I going to survive now? Like, <laughs> I'm like, you'll, you'll survive. Together, the two processed a lot of the changes in Lee's life. But McNeil isn't a therapist, and eventually she felt like it was time to bring in a professional. So McNeil signed Lee up for a new program, free in-home therapy. So this is beautiful. It comes out to your home. You don't have to go anywhere. Nobody really is going to know. That was a plus for Lee, too. 
even though it was hard, she wanted to prove she could raise her baby on her own. She felt some shame asking for help. The black community don't know postpartum. It's like they look at it like, you need to be strong, girl. Like my aunts and all of them went through, had five, six, seven babies. And they all about two, three years apart. Like you only got one. And it's this expectation on us as women of color that like we have to be like these superhero strong that we're not allowed to be vulnerable. I'm not allowed to have postpartum because I'm black. If mothers can get past the stigma and the logistical hurdles, treatment for postpartum depression is reliably effective. Talk therapy and antidepressants usually work. The real risks come when the depression goes untreated. Research shows postpartum depression can have an impact on an infant's brain development and can cause behavior issues. It's linked with lower rates of breastfeeding and makes it harder for some new moms to follow certain safety practices. Car seats specifically, so using car seats. That's pediatrician Stacey Callum again. And then also it's recommended that all babies should sleep on their back to prevent sudden infant death syndrome. And there's research that shows that mothers with postpartum depression are less likely to place their babies back to sleep on their back. Stephanie Lee says if her community health worker hadn't set her up with therapy at home, she doubts she would have gotten help at all. She feels way better now, and she's super engaged with Santino. G. Goat. Goat. Grass. Yes, grass and goat. G. Therapy helped Lee get a grasp on her life, and she learned how to take some time for herself. Even if I was in a shower, I was like, okay, say a prayer, do some positive affirmations right now. Like, if this is my only time I have from, like, the time I got the shower to the time I do my hair, the quiet time to myself, use it. Like, just use it. That story was reported by Nina Feldman a few years ago, and the program at the Maternity Care Coalition has been expanded since then. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, our ideas of motherhood are often shaped by what we think should happen. So what if it doesn't? This sense of certainty and groundedness and kind of like that deep well of all-knowing, mothering wisdom. Like, where, where was that for me? That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about motherhood. When Chelsea Conaboy first became a mom, it was not at all what she had expected. Things were not going according to plan. She'd heard so many messages about what motherhood was supposed to be like. We developed this sense that our pregnancy has to go a certain way, our birth has to look a certain way, a baby will arrive, you'll hold them and you'll you'll be flooded with oxytocin and your baby will be flooded with oxytocin and they'll latch on and your body will be sealed, right? And we're made to feel like if that doesn't happen or any other thing within the lineup of like the perfect transition to to motherhood, if it doesn't happen, then, oh, we've screwed up. So there she was sitting in her living room next to her newborn son, feeling inadequate and wondering why her maternal instinct wasn't kicking in. This sense of certainty and groundedness and kind of like that deep well of all-knowing, mothering wisdom. Like, where, where was that for me? I was feeling, you know, really worried, overwhelmed with worry, and not only um, worried about my son's well-being, but really, like, worried that something had changed in me and that it was somehow interfering with what I was supposed to be feeling. This experience led Chelsea to investigate some of our long-held beliefs about motherhood and how they influence our ways of thinking and behaving. She's a health and science writer, and her new book is called Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. One of the things Chelsea writes about in the book is changes in the brain that come with motherhood. We have a lot of terms that seem to hint at those changes, like mommy brain, but the field of studying what's actually happening is still pretty new. The research into the parental brain, particularly in other animals, goes back about 50 years. And so we have this pretty strong animal literature. And then the brain imaging in humans really comes from the past 20 years or so. And it still is like a relatively young field, but it's really strong enough at this point where we know some things <laughs> about about what it means to to go through this developmental stage of life that is new parenthood. Are there structural changes that can be observed in the brains of people who've given birth in the time after birth or during the most active times of caring for an infant? Is there anything we can see in the brain that's different? Yes, absolutely. So just beginning with structural changes, since you asked, there are some really key studies that have come out in the last few years that look at the brain imaging of mothers before they're ever pregnant and then 
directly after the childbirth, and then again, two years out and six years out. So we're starting to get that longitudinal picture. And what they found is that there is significant volume loss across that period from before pregnancy to the postpartum period, and that much of that loss remains even at the six-year mark. And it's really important to note here what volume loss means. Yeah, please do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the loss in the... Chelsea case. says the volume loss happened in areas that are responsible for how we read and respond to people's social cues. Volume loss is usually associated with degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but not in this case. This is more like what happens during adolescence when the brain is also going through some changes. And it's really recognized that that's like a fine-tuning of the brain. It's a strengthening of synapses that are relevant for the next stage of life and a pruning of those that are less so. And they think that that's what's happening in the postpartum period too, that we're strengthening the connections in our brain that we really need, and particularly probably in the social cognition you know, regions, and we're pruning away the ones that are less important. So it doesn't mean like your brain is shrinking or you're losing function. It's more like you're changing what you're doing. Absolutely. You're changing what you're doing. You're adapting to a new role. And was that the biggest noticeable change that has been found so far? It's a really significant one. There's also a lot of work that's been done to look at functional changes. So how brain regions change in their activity and their connectivity, specifically as parents interact with their children or hear responses to cues like cries or babies' faces. So that's kind of a different set of studies. And the pattern they found there is that in the early postpartum period, the brain regions that become really highly activated by babies' cues are related to our motivation and our sense of vigilance and salience or meaning making. And the idea is that this activity really kind of propels us into this state of hyper-responsiveness to our babies. It really compels us to give our children our attention and to do so sort of over and over again, even when we might not have any practical skills <laughs> to really care for them. And, you know, that function is sort of twofold, I think. One is to keep our babies alive. They need our attention in order to survive. But also it really sort of pushes us into this period of really intense learning. And it's thought that over time that intense attention on our children, that practice of, of reading and responding to their cues really helps that process of fine-tuning our social cognition. And at the same time, we get better, it's thought, at regulating our own emotions in response to things like our baby's distress. And what is thought to bring about those changes? Is the thinking that it's hormones that change it, or is it the act of taking care of an infant? In other words, I'm wondering, do we see similar changes in people who did not give birth, in the other partner who is taking care of the infant, so on and so forth? Yeah, it's both things. It's thought that it's hormones and experience. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk a lot about hormones during pregnancy and how, you know, we have these major shifts in estrogen and progesterone and oxytocin and other things too, things like cortisol. And 
that those all serve to kind of keep the pregnancy going to advance the gestation. But it's also thought that those things are acting on the brain too and kind of priming our brains to be ready to receive our babies. And babies are really incredibly powerful stimuli (laughs) for the adult brain. And it's thought that it's really time and exposure to them, that that's what ultimately shapes the, the parental brain. And it's really important to say here that other parents also go through hormonal shifts and it's thought that those shifts shape the brain. Fathers, for example, likely experience drops in testosterone as fatherhood approaches. They experience changes in their prolactin system, which is something we often think of as a milk-making hormone, but it's also involved in bonding. And they experience spikes in oxytocin as they interact with their babies. And those things are also thought to prime them for this stimuli. And it's expected that we don't have a lot of research in other parents, adoptive parents and others, but it's thought that similar, both hormonal and experience-driven changes happen in them as well. I want to get back to the issue of anxiety. You mentioned that you felt worried a lot when you were a new mom, and that is certainly something I think a lot of parents can relate to. But in some cases, the anxiety becomes overwhelming. And that's something you describe in the book. You talk to several parents who felt that way. Yeah, I think that that hyper-responsiveness, that hyper-vigilance is almost like deliberately (laughs) colored by worry in the postpartum period. So it is hard to like sort those who are having an adaptive experience to those who are struggling. But I do think that for me, you know, I had this really overwhelming worry, anxiety in that postpartum period, and I had no framing for what was happening to me. And I really feel like it was made worse by not understanding kind of the neurobiological changes I was going through. And I felt like the simple fact that I was so worried was a sign that like I had failed my son somehow already. And it really compounded my experience. And once I found the science, I really felt like oh, it reframed that whole experience for me and made me feel like this is something I have to face and I have to deal with in a thoughtful way. But also maybe it's productive, you know, maybe it's uh, helping to shape me into the parent my son needs. And I think more parents deserve that information, both to recognize what the transition they might be going through and to see when it's gone too far, you know, when it's more than they can manage and that they should seek help for it. One of the reasons Chelsea was so worried and anxious as a new mom was because she didn't feel a maternal instinct kick in. And she wondered where this concept originated. The idea really comes from our moral ideas of motherhood, our religious ideas of motherhood. Someone who is self-sacrificing and whose uh, mothering becomes kind of all-encompassing. And then some of that is really echoed in Darwin's theory of evolution. I mean, he writes about the mother bird sitting like so satisfied upon her eggs day after day. But what his work did really was to, you know, tear down this wall between humans and other animals. And naturalists in the late 19th century and early 20th century had begun writing about animal instincts and also had very much like written our ideas of gender into their writings about the natural world. And so 
when instinct theorists started writing about humans in the early part of the 20th century, they included in a long list of human instincts, parental instinct, which they said was strongest in mothers. So the idea that women instinctively know how to be mothers became more accepted. Later, Austrian zoologist Konrad Lorenz documented instinctual behaviors in birds and how newly hatched birds attach to the first creature they see, usually the mother bird. So Konrad Lorenz, he's most famous for his articulation of imprinting in birds and this idea that birds will relate with the first species that they see or or even the first moving object that they see. And he really developed that idea into this kind of lock and key theory of energy building up in key parts of our brain. And then once they interact with a specific key, it unlocks a particular kind of behavior. And in his theory, essentially, like mothers and babies were these sets of locks and keys. And his expertise really was in birds, but he used it to talk about human bonding as well. And that concept that the brains of mothers and babies function basically in tandem, just clicking into place and activating instinctual behaviors, it spread. And it places a lot of responsibility and pressure on mothers. Mothers need to behave in a specific way, not only behave, but feel love in a specific way towards their children and act on that love in order for their child to develop appropriately. And it's this kind of rigid idea of a maternal instinct um, conveyed through new language, I think. Chelsea says that in truth, things are much less rigid. For example, when it comes to mothers bonding with children. One of my favorite researchers in the book said that parenting is so essential to survival of our species and to our evolution that there will be redundancies. So like you don't start the bonding in that moment. There will be lots of other opportunities for that to begin. And so, of course, there's many ways that it can go and for it to be healthy and for you and your child to like move into this new time of your life together. And for me, this science has allowed me to like give myself a lot more grace and patience and belief in the process because it is a process. It's a process of growth. It's not, it's not a fixed pattern of behavior. Chelsea Conaboy is a health and science writer. Her new book is Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the History of Motherhood. Parenting is something we learn over time, a role we grow into. And while maternal instinct is probably not something that happens for people right from the start, we often do develop a certain sense of intuition for the children we care for. The saying, mom knows best, certainly does seem to have a lot of truth to it. Katie Pratt spoke to her mother about this. Can you just quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Wendy Pratt, and what else am I supposed to say? <laughs> Sorry. They talked about a difficult time in their lives when Katie was still a toddler and facing some serious health issues. Here's Wendy. When you were three, you 
kept pointing to your forehead and just telling me that you have your head hurt periodically. It wasn't all the time that you complained. It was just that you would complain periodically. I said, you know what? I think I need to take her to the doctor. The doctor suggested an MRI. As they were doing the MRI, the technician noticed that your cerebellum, she described it as like it's the cork of the brain, has grown outside of your skull, and that's called a Chiari-1 malformation. She said, well, it could be a problem. It's nothing that we have to deal with it right now, or we could, but you will have to deal with it because your spinal fluid wasn't getting down your spine because this cerebellum, the piece of brain that grew outside your skull, was blocking the spinal fluid. At first, Wendy and her husband decided to wait on the operation until Katie was a little bit older. So that was the diagnosis. What happened between the diagnosis and operation that led to brain surgery at three? You were running around and all of a sudden you just fell. And you didn't fall over anything, you just stopped and you were on the ground. And you looked at me and said, Mom, my legs don't work, they just stopped. And I said, oh, okay. So we contacted Children's Hospital of Boston and we got the doctor. And he was world known, he was, he was very good. And showed us the x-ray and he said what they do is they go in and they remove the back of your head, like the skull will be all removed. And what they do is they move the cerebellum and they redirect your spinal fluid to go back into your spine. And I said to him, I said, don't you, um, don't you need to cut the cerebellum? And he looked at me and just said, excuse me, that is the brain. You never cut the brain. The brain, we don't even know all the aspects of the brain, but the brain is never to be cut. I think we went back like in two weeks to do the operation. And your dad and I were waiting downstairs and... Um, I don't know, maybe four or five hours went by. I'm not sure. Feels like a lifetime. We're just waiting. And then finally, the doctor who um, did your surgery comes through the doors, and he he just beelines right for me. He gives me this eye stare, and he walks right towards me. He just <laughs> looks at me, and he said, how did you know? And I said, how did I know what? He goes, how did you know that I had to remove some of her brain. And he said, the cerebellum, your, the growth that was out of your brain was so compacted. It was so compacted in there that it had, to, had rotten and it was black. He had to remove it. And, um, and he, was, he said, in all, I've been doing the surgery for so many years and I've never had to remove anyone's cerebellum before. And you knew At one point, you said mother's intuition. Do you think that mother's intuition is a thing? As moms, like, we are the kids. We are our kids' first first line of defense, first line of, of love, first line of everything. We have, we have the amazing ability to have these beautiful people entrusted to us. Sorry. So I just feel like... 
that we are so in tune to our kids. And then I think we are led by the the amount of love that we have to to just kind of go go beyond what's the obvious sometimes. There's something powerful about mom's love. And I just think, like, you just know. Sometimes I just know when you might be having a hard day and you're not even nearby. I can just, I could just feel it sometimes. And I'm, I send you a text or it's just these amazing connections. So, yeah, I totally think there's mother's intuitions. And I think so many times I look at my life and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, thank you. Thank you that I kind of knew that or I had that feeling. That was Wendy Pratt talking to her daughter Katie, our former intern, about a surgery Katie had to get for a condition called Chiari 1 malformation. Love you. I love you too, buddy. Welcome to the end of being alone inside your mind. You're tethered to another and you worried all the time. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And this week we had additional engineering from Al Banks. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.